Well, I wonder how many of you who have been with us over the past few weeks are realizing that your big fat mouth gets you in trouble too. I certainly uh, have been recognizing some areas where maybe uh, where I thought we were going to you know, talk about one thing and I thought, well, I'm, I'm probably pretty good in that area. As we've moved through this series, recognize, oh man, maybe I've still got some work to do. Maybe some of you have felt that way as well. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has given you his spirit to convince convict you of these things and to make you more and more like Jesus. So when you feel that, don't resist it. Uh, Be obedient to it. Press into the person of Jesus Christ, and and, uh, I hope you're seeing your words line up with who he is. We started talking about uh, complaining a few weeks ago and what it means to change our perspective and to rejoice in all circumstances. And then two weeks ago, Paul talked to us about gossip, and it's those casual and unconstrained words about others And I love the point that he made, that uh, everything we say needs to be true, but not everything that is true needs to be said. What a a great filter just to put all of our words through. But this morning, we're going to shift our attention to one final category of words, and it has to do with the topic of criticism. It's those unkind, unloving, unhelpful words that so often come out of our mouths, And the trouble with criticism is that we often feel so justified in it because if they weren't so weird or or so ignorant or so out of touch, then I wouldn't have to criticize them, right? It's actually their fault because after all, we know the best way for everyone else to live their lives or at least that's what we're communicating when we criticize. And so if you don't live up to my standard, well, then I have every right to criticize you. And we'll criticize everything. We'll criticize the way someone dresses. We'll criticize the way they raise their kids, the way they spend their money, what they post on social media, you know, where they go on vacation, because you and I both know you didn't have the money for that, right? And we say these things, and these words come out of our mouths. And for some of us, I'm afraid that criticism has really just become our native tongue. And we never even think about it. But this morning... I'm asking you to think about it, okay? I'm asking you just to, just to push pause for the next 30 minutes and to really examine and evaluate the words that come out of your mouth. Because what I think you'll this mo- see this morning is that criticism has no place in the life of a believer. It has no place in the life of someone who would wear the name of a Christian. And Paul makes it very clear why this is very important. He says this in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 14, that the entire law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that probably sounds familiar to you. We've heard that before around Genesis Church for sure. Jesus said that. He was quoting the Old Testament. And now Paul is reaffirming its importance here. But then he goes on to say this in verse 15. He says, But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So Paul says, Love your neighbor, but... And then he tells us what the opposite of loving is. And he says it has to do with biting and devouring and criticizing others. And maybe we've done this. We've fallen into a a pattern of doing this for so long that we don't even realize it anymore. And we don't realize what it does. What does Paul say that does? He says it destroys the other person. 
And so maybe we don't even recognize the destruction that our words are causing. I mean, what if your critical words are killing the intimacy you could have in your marriage? Or, or parents, what if your critical words are, are driving a wedge between you and your kids? Or, or those of us here who are our kids, what if your words are driving that wedge between you and your parents? What if your critical words are destroying the close and meaningful friendships that you might otherwise have? Or, or how about this one? What if your critical words are actually keeping you from sharing the gospel because people just can't get over how critical you are? And so if that's what it means to be a Christian, like, I don't want that. I don't need that in my life. Paul says, beware that your words don't destroy those around you. Now, I want you to hear what Solomon had to say about this. He was the wisest man in the world. People came from all over to hear him, kings and queens. They would travel far distances just to hear Solomon's wisdom. What did he say about this? Well, in Proverbs twelve eighteen, he says this. He says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Okay, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, I've told you before about my grandpa Jones. That's my grandpa on my mom's side. He served in the Navy in World War II, and he actually uh, came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in the midst of battle in the South Pacific. My grandpa Krauss was also in World War II. He was in the Army, and he actually had boots on the ground in Japan. And my grandpa brought something back from the war with him, and it became the, the most uh, valued item, I guess, the, the thing that my heart was on the most. When we would go to visit my grandma and grandpa, this is what I always wanted to see. And this is a World War II Japanese infantryman's sword. And this isn't for decoration, okay? This is the real deal. It is uh, still as sharp as the day that a Japanese soldier carried it. And I can remember when I was a, a young boy uh, messing around in my grandpa's room, for some reason I was rummaging through his closet and I found this. And I thought, my goodness, my grandpa is a ninja. <laughs> and I loved my grandpa so much in that moment, uh, I can't even tell you. But from that point on, whenever we would go to my grandma and grandpa's house, I would get this down and, and I would pull it out of its sheath and I'd stand in front of the full-length mirror in his room and, and I'd pretend that I was a thundercat, okay? I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say it. And I, I'd swing it around and, and uh, do all kinds of dangerous stuff with it and no one was watching, obviously. But when my grandpa died, um, my grandma gave me this sword to remember my grandpa by. And, and quite honestly, um, she probably gave it to me way too young because I, I had a recliner in my bedroom and I would regularly run that thing through with this sword. I was a fairly aggressive child and, uh, and, and my parents found out that was going on and, and they very quickly told me to cut it out. But, but Solomon says that the reckless used their words to pierce and that's exactly what this sword is designed to do. I mean, the, the whole edge is sharp, but I don't know if you can see it or not. You're welcome to come up and, and check this out after the service. But, but the tip is what's most impressive. I mean, it is ground in such a way to very easily go into whatever object it comes up against. And Solomon says, this is exactly what the words of the reckless are like. They pierce like swords. And some of you know firsthand that that's very true. 
Some of you have felt the effect of those cutting, piercing words of criticism. I counseled with a woman uh, several years ago now who was in her late 60s and still feeling the effects of some hurtful, critical words spoken to her by her mother when she was very young. And even though almost 50 years had passed since they were spoken, this woman could still recite word for word what her mother had said to her in that moment. Her mother had since passed. There was no chance of going and reconciling or making things better. But those words that pierced like a sword had stuck with her all of these years. Now Solomon says the reckless, their words pierce and they cut and they destroy But he says other people are wise, and he says they speak words that build others up. And Solomon says that their words bring healing. Clay, would you come up here with me for a minute? You weren't expecting this, were you? We didn't talk about this. I'm just going to tell everybody right now. Clay Pruitt, would you give him a hand while he comes up to the stage? Clay, why don't you come on up here, and uh, you can... You can use that. You want to use a microphone? Sure. Don't get your beard stuck in it, okay? It gets tangly, a little bit tangly. Do you know what this is? Do you have any idea what that is? AED. An AED, and I'm so glad that you called it that because the other name for it is a defibrillator, and I have a really hard time saying defibrillator. So we're just going to call it an AED, an an automatic emergency defibrillator, right? And so what what is this used for? Um, You can use the mic if you want to. Starting a heart, restarting your heart. Restarting a heart, exactly. And so uh, maybe a year or two ago, I bought one of these for each of our campuses. And uh, a guy who goes to our Carmel campus trained our entire staff on how to use it. Um, This is what you would would see in the movies when a doctor um, takes the the two paddles and and rubs them together and yells, clear! And then he hits somebody and you see him come up off the table, right? And exactly like Clay said, it's used to restart somebody's heart. Hey, Clay, would you take your shirt off? I want to try something real quick. If Nobody wants to see that, Ben. What's that? Nobody wants to see that. You're not going to, we can't, you're kind of ruining my illustration. Okay, well, you can go sit down. Thank you. Will you guys give Clay a hand? But here, here's the deal. When I was thinking about what Solomon has to say about our words, and I thought about words that bring healing, this is what came to mind, right? Because just like Clay said, this thing has the ability to start a dead heart, a heart that has stopped beating. And in the right hands, in the trained, you know, skilled hands of someone who knows what they're doing, this thing can bring healing. And Solomon says that's what the words of the wise are like. That a wise person evaluates the situation. They know what to do. They say those words that begin the healing process. And so I just want to ask you this morning, when you think about your words, do they look more like this or do they look more like this? I mean, would you typically say that you are speaking wise words that are intent on healing? Or are you speaking reckless words that are intent on cutting and piercing and destroying? Because I I want you to know this this morning, that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, this is not a gray area for us at all. Our words are supposed to look like this. And this isn't a suggestion. It's a command. And uh, I want you to listen to what Paul had to say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. 
Here's what Paul says about this. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Do you hear the, do you hear the action that Paul is calling us to here? He's saying there, there, there's some kind of, some kind of action that, that we have to take. We have to stop those words from coming out of our mouth. Don't let them come out. They're going to try. They're going to try and push their way out. Don't let them. But instead, only let come out what is helpful and what is beneficial for building others up. I want to tell you this morning that it wasn't long ago that I was on the receiving end of some reckless criticism. And I'm not going to tell you this story because I desire sympathy or because I'm still in a place of woundedness or any of that. I want to tell you the story so I can tell you what happened next. Uh, But the reality is uh, I had a relationship in my life that was strained to say the least. And I felt very convicted by the Lord Uh, that I had a part to play in that. There were some things that I had done that I needed to to confess and I needed to take accountability for and that as far as it depended on me, I needed to live at peace with this person. And so I reached out and I said, hey, could we grab a cup of coffee together? And I prayed over it. I, I tried to approach it with as much humility as I possibly could with a heart set on reconciliation. But the reality is the other person had a different agenda. And he saw this as an opportunity to attack and to destroy. And he questioned my character. He questioned my integrity. He questioned my ministry. And he in no certain terms told me that I was a worthless pastor and a worthless person. And it became clear that this wasn't going to end well. I I tried to steer the conversation back to reconciliation a number of times. But it just became so obvious that that wasn't going to happen. And so uh, I simply let him know that my intent was, was for us to heal the relationship. I felt this was doing more to hurt it, and I excused myself, and I left. And as I headed back uh, to the, on it, the, the office, um, if I were being very honest with you, um, that conversation unhinged me. And it, it's not easy to unhinge me, or at least I don't want you to think it is. <laughs> But it unhinged me. And as I pulled into the parking lot, my friend Paul, your pastor, Paul Mumal, my pastor Paul, was getting out of his car. And he could see I was upset. He knew about the situation. He knew I was going uh, to try to take care of that. And uh, he hopped in my truck and we took a drive. And if you know Paul at all, Paul began doing what Paul does best. And he got out his AED and he went to work on my heart. And he started speaking words of life words of wisdom, words of encouragement, and words of healing over me. Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for those who hear. And you may never know how one reckless word of criticism may pierce and destroy someone for years to come. But the other side of that is also true. And you may not understand how one word of hope and encouragement can begin the healing process in someone who desperately needs it. This person that I met with, he was reckless. His words were unwholesome. He was a life taker, but my friend Paul was a life giver. 
And I want you to see that our words have the power of life and they have the power of death. So don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is beneficial for building others up. I want to give you two options for how you can choose to use your words. These are on your notes page if you want to write them down. But option number one is this. You can choose to be a fault finder. A fault finder. And this, quite honestly, is what I believe most people are. And I don't say that because I'm just a, a negative, pessimistic person. It's just that this is the path of least resistance. Okay, if you put no effort whatsoever into this area of overcoming criticism, this is likely what you will become or what you have become. It's so easy to be a fault finder because in our sin nature, our default seems to be to look for and to highlight what is wrong with everyone else. So think about this in your own relationships. Those of you who are married, it's so easy to be a fault finder with your spouse, isn't it? I mean, can you believe he forgot to take the garbage out again? I mean, how hard is it to take the garbage out? How smart do you have to be to take the garbage out? Or, or why did you make this for dinner? I told you I don't like it. Quit making me this stuff for dinner. I don't like this stuff, you know? Or, or why do you always have to leave your clothes laying everywhere? You're not a kid. You're such a slob. Put your clothes away. I don't like the way you do this. I don't like the way you do I don't like the way you breathe. I I've got to breathe, right? What are you supposed to say to that? Or maybe this plays out at work. You know, I don't like the way he runs the meetings. He has the stupidest ideas. This is never going to work. I, I don't like the way she talks. She's so annoying. She just talks and talks and talks and talks, talks. I can't handle it. Or in your friendships, you know, can you believe her kids? She has the worst kids. I mean, they may as well put them in prison now, right? Those are, they're awful kids. Or the way they drive. If they're going to drive like that, they need to take the Genesis sticker off of their car and put a Northview sticker on there instead. That's how Northview people drive, right? We love Northview, by the way. But it's so easy to be a fault finder, isn't it? But why do we do that? Well, I, I think there are a few reasons why. You might want to jot this down and, and kind of evaluate yourself against these. But I think a lot of it, I think the main reason that we do this, it has to do with pride. It has to do with the problem of pride. And we look at others and we think we know what's best, and so we criticize them when, when they don't do what we think they should do, and it's actually just a reflection of our own pride. Or maybe we're just insecure, and so we criticize the things in others that we see as weaknesses in ourselves, and we do that as a way to get the spotlight off of us and onto someone else. If they're looking at their weakness, they're not going to notice it in me, so I'm going to criticize, I'm going to put the, put the spotlight over there. Sometimes we criticize because we're uninformed. And so we do it from a distance, right? We throw these darts from a distance, and we don't even really know you know, the whole story. We don't even know what's going on, but we just throw those darts of criticism and let them land where they will. Those of you who, uh, who don't have kids or, or maybe some of you uh, who haven't had young kids for a long time, I want you to think with me about the last time you saw a two-year-old melting down at the grocery store, okay? It's an awful sight, right? And some of you are in the midst of that stage right now. It's just, it's just helpless. And if you are honest... Was there anything inside of you that thought, Man, she, that mom needs to get that kid under control, right? I, I wonder if she's even a good mom. I bet, she, I bet, I bet he acts like that because of the way that, that she parents. Like, has, did, did something like that maybe come into your mind? Because when I was young and I didn't have kids, that's exactly what I thought when I saw a two-year-old melting down at the grocery store. But here's what happened. I got married and I had kids 
And then it was my two-year-old melting down at the grocery store. And here's what I learned in the midst of that moment. And you can't learn this until you have your own two-year-old melting down in the grocery store. You cannot negotiate with terrorists, okay? You can't do it. You can't give in to their demands. You can't give them what they want. You've just got to push ahead. Uh, you've got to get home, and you've got to do what you've got to do. You don't know that until it's your two-year-old who's melting down in the grocery store. And so don't, don't judge from a distance. Don't, don't judge from a distance. You see, when we criticize others, we tend to think, well, this shows how good I am right? This shows how smart I am. This shows that I have everything figured out. But I'm here to tell you today, it doesn't show that at all. It doesn't make you look smart. It doesn't make you look better. It makes you look mean. It makes you look insecure. And it makes you look a whole lot like someone in scripture. And it's not a good thing. Do you know who the biggest fault finder in all of scripture is? His name is Satan. It's the devil. And one of the titles that is given to him in the New Testament is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. He accuses, he accuses, and he finds fault. He finds fault day and night. He stands before God finding fault in you and me. He accuses the brethren. You don't have to be like that. You don't have to be like Satan. That's, that's what we're doing, you know, when we find fault, when we accuse, when we throw criticism like that. We're acting like the devil, but we don't have to do that. There's another option. There's another way to live. Option number two is this. You don't have to be a fault finder. You can be a hope dealer. A hope dealer. If you think about this in terms of what it is that followers of Jesus have to offer the world, our commodity is hope. We deal in hope. We offer the world hope. In fact, this should be the natural overflow of our relationship with God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 15. He says, may the God of hope. Who is he? Who is our God? He's the God of hope. And Paul says, may he fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer and Paul's desire was that we would know the God of hope and that through trusting in him, we would be so filled with hope that it would overflow out of us and that we wouldn't be able to contain it. The devil is the accuser. The devil is a fault finder. But 1 Timothy calls Jesus our hope. Titus 2 calls Jesus the blessed hope. 1 Peter calls Jesus the living hope. And in the Gospels, do you know what we find? Whenever someone was caught in sin, the Pharisees would come and they would highlight that sin and they would accuse that person. And that makes sense because Jesus himself called the Pharisees children of hell. In Matthew 23, and in John 8, he, calls the, he, he tells him, you are of your father, the devil. And so that makes sense that, that the Pharisees would accuse because that's what the devil does. He's the accuser. He's a fault finder, but not Jesus. Jesus was a hope dealer. And we see this not in the fact that he excused sin. Jesus wasn't soft on sin. That's not what this means. But here's what, what he never did. He never left the sinner without hope. I want you to think about the story of the woman who is caught in adultery. John records that in John chapter 8. If you don't know the story, read it for yourself later today. It's fantastic. But when the Pharisees brought this adulterous woman before Jesus, 
and they wanted his approval to kill her. It's so interesting what Jesus did. They were trying to trap Jesus, okay? So, so the law says that, that if you commit adultery, we get to throw rocks at you until you die. Jesus, that's what it says. So what do you say? Can we, let's, let's do it, okay? Let's do it. But Jesus, he turns the table on these fault-finding Pharisees, these sons of the devil, and he says to them, he says, whichever of you is without sin, you get to throw the first stone. And then the Gospels tell us that he knelt down and he began writing something in the dirt. And we're not told what, what he wrote. None of the Gospels lay out for us what it was he wrote in the dirt. But people uh, ha have speculated that, that maybe it was something like the Ten Commandments. Maybe, maybe it was even more specific. Maybe he was writing some of the sins of the Pharisees. But whatever it is he wrote and what, what they heard him say, it caused them one by one to drop their stones and to walk away. And so Jesus, he, he looks over at the woman. And she had to have been terrified. I mean, the last thing she knew, she, she's hunkered down and rocks are going to be flying at her head. But, but Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? And she looks up. They're gone. It's just her and Jesus. And she says, they're not here. They've all left. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And it's so incredible, isn't it? How Jesus was always so full of grace and truth. Not grace or truth, but grace and truth. And if we, as followers of Jesus, are going to walk as Jesus walked, we've got to display and model that pattern in our words as well. And we all have a choice to make. We can use our words to be fault finders or we can use them to be hope dealers. Which one do you want to be? The Pharisees were fault finders. The devil is a fault finder, but Jesus was a hope dealer. He is the living hope. He is our blessed hope. He is our only hope. And he has called us to overflow with hope, using our words, not to criticize and destroy, but to heal and to benefit all who would listen. So on a very practical level, what might this look like? Even today, even today as you leave this place, you are going to be tempted to criticize. I'm just telling you right now, you and I, we're both going to be tempted to criticize. We're going to be, be tempted when we drive, tempted when we eat, tempted when we interact with other people. It's going to be there. But here's what I want to suggest. That instead of highlighting what is wrong, you highlight what is good and right. Maybe your kid isn't the best at keeping his room clean, but he's got a great heart. And so you tell them, you know what, you're amazing. I love what I see in you. I love the way you care about others. And I want you to think about how much I love you while you go clean your room, okay? Because <laughs> the room's still got to be cleaned, right? It's not an out, kids. You still have to clean your room. But, but build them up. Words of healing, words of life. Your roommate may eat all of your food and wear all of your clothes and never do the dishes or the laundry. Listen, it's just what roommates do. But maybe that person is, is a really great friend to you. Highlight that. Thank you for being such a great friend. Thank you for sticking with me 
even though sometimes I, I know I'm hard to live with, but thank you for being such a great friend. Build them up. Words of life. Your husband may not be the best at fixing things, but he's a great dad. Don't pick him apart for what he's not. You lift him up for what he is. I, I love the way you love our kids. I love how you're intentional with them. Words of life. Build him up. Husbands, your wife may not be the best cook, but when she makes you a meal, you tell her, I appreciate this so much that I don't have to come home and and figure out what to do for dinner. You encourage her with words of life. Build her up. It's time for us to break the sinful pattern of criticism that so many of us have given into and to replace those critical words with words of hope and words of healing. I want to be part of a church that is full of hope dealers. People who have committed to controlling their tongues and speaking only what is beneficial to those who listen. Are you ready to join me in this? If you are, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask our host team uh, if they will pass something out for me. And uh, we're going to put it up on the screen. This is something that I wrote a couple of weeks ago, and I'm calling it my big fat resolution. So everybody's going to get one of these right now. But here's the deal. This is the line in the sand for those of us who have gotten lazy with our words, or maybe for some of us who have never given God control over our tongues. If you have a critical tongue, I'm inviting you today to join me in this resolution to speak differently. Let God begin to transform your words. So as the host team is passing this out, I want to read this resolution for you before I invite you to read it with me because here's the deal. I don't want you to just robotically read these words, okay? Listen to me. That's not the point of this, okay? That, if, you, if you're not going to actually commit to this and do it, don't read it. That's called lying. I won't be offended if you don't read this. God will be offended if you read it and don't mean it, okay? Does that make sense? But here's what it says. My big fat resolution. I resolve to not let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. And I resolve only to speak what is helpful and beneficial to those who listen. And I resolve to speak words of healing and not destruction. And I resolve that when I fail, I will repent, seek forgiveness, and allow God by his grace to transform the words I speak. Now, Before we read this together, just two things, okay? The first is this. Saying these words is not going to make God love you any more than he already does. Okay, that's not what this is about. This isn't about, I have to do this to earn God's favor, and if I don't, he won't love me, or if I fail... That's not it. We don't do this to earn God's love. We do this in response to God's love. God's love language is obedience. He desires that his children would be obedient to his commands. And so because of his great love for us, we respond in obedience by committing to these things. So please don't do this as something out of compulsion that I have to or God won't. It's not that. It's simply a response of people who have been loved by God and want to love him in return. The second thing is this. The last line of this resolution may be the most important. 
Because here's what I know about you and what I know about me. We are all still stuck in this body of flesh. We are all still in these bodies of sin and death. And even though the Lord has called us his own, he has put his spirit inside of us, the day has not yet come when we will shed these sinful bodies of death and be in our glorified bodies of perfection. And because of that, we will fail. But the Bible is very clear what to do when we find ourselves in a sinful pattern, when we have committed some sin. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive our sins. But not only that, that he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And and I got to tell you today, I don't fully understand how this works, but, but the ideas of transformation and confession these two things are not mutually exclusive. That is to say, if all we ever do is say, man, I, I just, I want to be different, but we never confess and we never repent, don't expect to see big life change. I've just, that's how I've seen it play out in my own heart. That's how I see it in scripture, that confession and repentance go hand in hand with life transformation. And so if we are to really see our words be, be changed to God's glory, we're going to have to be people who practice confession and repentance. So please don't rush past this last line. It may be the most important line of them all, knowing that we will fail, but when we do, we know what to do. And so... If I have shown you this morning that, that, that Scripture is very clear, that our words are to be wholesome, our words are not to be critical, our words are to be helpful and beneficial. If I have shown you this morning that in the life of a believer that there is, is no room for criticism, And if you have recognized in your own heart that this has become a pattern and something that you want to commit to doing differently with the help of God, I want to invite you now to stand with me and to read these words and to commit to this together. If that's you, would you stand and let's read together. Let's read it together. I resolve to not let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. I resolve only to speak what is helpful and beneficial to those who listen. And I resolve to speak words of healing and not destruction. And I resolve that when I fail, I will repent, seek forgiveness, and allow God, by his grace, to transform the words I speak. One final thing, I want to invite you to sign that resolution and put it somewhere where it can be a reminder for you going forward of the commitment that you've made today. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, I suspect that the best place for us to start in approaching you is the place where this resolution ends, and that is the place of repentance. Recognizing, Lord, that, that we have acted wrongly in this area of criticism that we have allowed our words to be destructive, we have allowed our words to, to pierce and to cut, and that that is sinful. So, Father, we ask you to forgive us for our careless, prideful, sinful words. 
Lord, I pray that, that you would begin to transform us, transform our tongues, transform the words that come out of our mouths. Find us faithful to the action of not letting those unwholesome words come out of our mouths, Lord, and fill us with hope today, that we would overflow with hope and that our words would be helpful and beneficial, bringing healing to everyone who hears. And I pray that you would help us in this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.